Please open your Bibles to the Old Testament reading, which is Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 8. And the New Testament reading will be Luke. We will read verses 1 through 4. This will be the sermon text for today, Luke 1, 1 through 4. Isaiah 40, 1 through 8. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are as grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us go now to the New Testament reading, Luke 1, 1 through 4. This is the sermon text. The title of the sermon today is An Introduction to the Gospel According to Luke. Peace to you. Luke 1, 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This now the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. So today we begin our consideration of the gospel according to Luke. I've always appreciated this gospel, but my love for it has grown tremendously over the past couple of months as I've had the opportunity to study it in greater depth than before. And so I very much look forward to engaging with it week after week and presenting its rich content to you, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, as we assemble together in Jesus' name. I trust that we will be very blessed to consider a new and afresh the person and work of Jesus Christ, and the implications of His finished work, not only for you and me and all who are united to Him by faith, but for all of God's creation. For by Christ's victory, He has earned peace. Peace in heaven, peace on earth, and peace with God the Father for all who are united to Him. By faith. This peace is enjoyed by all who have faith in the Messiah now, in part. And this peace will be enjoyed by us in full when Christ returns to make all things new. 
Why did Christ come, according to the Gospel of Luke? Not just Him, but this is certainly a prominent theme in His Gospel. Why did Christ come? Again, this, this question can be answered in a variety of ways, but Luke seems especially concerned to demonstrate to us that Christ, by His victory over sin, Satan, and death, has brought peace. Peace in heaven, peace on earth, and peace for all who are cleansed from their sins and reconciled to the Father through faith in Him. Again, I say this peace is present now in part, but not in full. It will be present in fullness when Christ returns to make all things new. I want you to consider briefly the emphasis that is placed upon peace in the Gospel of Luke. This sermon is introductory, and my hope now is to set your minds upon at least one of the very prominent themes that is contained within the Gospel of Luke. Luke wants us to see that Jesus the Christ is the Messiah who has brought peace. When Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, prophesies after being struck with muteness for a time, he says that Christ has come to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. That is Luke 1.79. When the angels sang praises to God before the shepherds in the field, they said, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth... Peace among those with whom He is pleased. That is Luke 2.14. You will notice that they pronounced peace on earth, not universally, but upon those with whom God is pleased. That is to say, with those upon whom God has set His pleasure. In Luke 19.38, Jesus enters Jerusalem to shouts of praise from the people. We call this episode the triumphal entry And what do the people proclaim? They shout, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That is Luke 19.38. They say that this King, Jesus, has come to bring peace even to the heavenly realm. Peace in heaven. What does that mean? Well, in Luke's Gospel, we see clearly that Christ came to secure peace not only on earth and not only for God's people, but in the heavenly realm too. This He would do by winning the victory over Satan and destroying His kingdom. This is going to be a tremendously important and rich theme in Luke's Gospel that Christ has won the victory in heaven And therefore, He brings victory and peace to earth as well. In Luke's Gospel, we hear Christ say things like this, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That is Luke 10, 18. Uh, This He says after the 72 return. This He says after He resists the temptation of the devil in the wilderness those three times. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In other words, this work that Christ was beginning to do then, the work that He would finish at the cross and upon His resurrection, was was doing something in the heavenly realm. Satan was being destroyed and defeated so that he would be cast out from the presence of God in heaven so as to no longer be able to accuse the brethren. We will talk about all of this in great detail as we come to it in the text. But the point is this, 
this is a theme in Luke. He wants to show us that Christ has not only brought peace to earth, He has not only brought peace for those who have faith in Him, He has brought peace to the heavenly realm too. Christ repeatedly casts out demons to demonstrate that He has won the victory over Satan's kingdom and that the kingdom of heaven has arrived now with power. You may see, for example, Luke eleven twenty. He speaks of disarming the evil one so that he might plunder his house. This earth has belonged to the evil one from the days of Adam until the days of Christ. The evil one kept the nations in darkness. But when Christ came, he came to defeat the evil one, to stomp the serpent's head, if you will, and to establish his kingdom so that the nations are no longer kept in darkness. He has bound the strong man so as to plunder his house progressively. You may see Luke eleven twenty one and following uh, for this. You see, when Adam fell by bowing the knee to Satan, Satan was given authority over this world for a time. He ruled the nations and kept them bound in darkness. But when Christ came and obeyed God the Father as the last Adam, that authority was taken away from the evil one and given to Christ. He rose from the dead, He ascended, and He sat down at the Father's right hand. Satan was barred from heaven as the accuser of the brethren. His heavenly authority over the nations was taken from him and given to Christ. And this is why the kingdom of God is now able to spread to all nations. We will need to consider these things as we come to them in the text. But for now I want you to know that Christ secured peace even in heaven by defeating the evil one through his obedience to the Father's will. Satan was bound at Christ's first coming so that he might not deceive the nations any longer says Revelation 20, verse 3. He was cast out of heaven so that he could no longer accuse the brethren as he did in the days of Job, and so that he could no longer hold the nations in darkness and idolatry as he did from the days of Adam to Christ. You may see Revelation 12, 7 and following for a picture of this. To put the matter simply, there is peace on earth now in part, and there will be peace on earth in full when Christ returns, that is to say in the new heavens and new earth, perfect peace will reign there because Christ has won the victory in the heavenly and spiritual realm. The evil one has been cast down from heaven to earth. He is still active of course, but he is bound and defeated as our enemy. At the end of time, he will be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. Christ, through His victorious life, death, and resurrection, has secured peace. Peace in heaven. Peace on earth for those with whom He is well pleased. It is no wonder then that Christ greeted His disciples in this way after His resurrection. Near to the very end of the Gospel of Luke, in His resurrection, He appears to his disciples, and as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. That is Luke 24 36. As I've said, there are many themes present in this gospel that we will be blessed to consider in the course of this study. But the theme of peace peace in heaven, peace on earth, and peace to all who are united to Christ by faith does seem to be most prominent. Christ has come to give peace to all of those given to Him by the Father. This peace is ours now in part. It will be ours full in the new heavens and earth, which Christ has earned through His obedient life, death, and victorious resurrection. The full title of this book is According to Luke, or we might say 
the gospel according to Luke. Gospel means good news. When we speak of the Christian gospel, we mean the good news concerning the salvation that Christ Jesus has earned for all who believe in Him. The gospel of Jesus Christ can be presented very briefly, as you know, but I would like to draw your attention to the way in which Luke presents this gospel. He does not present it briefly, but very carefully, at length and in great detail. And the same could be said of the other Gospels that are found in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and John. These four Gospels are not brief accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and of the salvation that He has earned. No, they are very carefully crafted, thorough, and detailed accounts of all that Christ has accomplished. Each one in their own way seeks to demonstrate that Jesus of Nazareth is Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah who was promised from long before. Brothers and sisters, we ought to be prepared to present the gospel of Jesus Christ succinctly. There are different ways to do this. We can tell the story of redemption in the terms of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Or we can present God's law, demonstrating that we are all guilty by nature because we are lawbreakers, and then hold forth Christ as the righteous one who has atoned for sin, proclaiming that there is salvation found in Him, received by faith alone. But I think we should also be able to speak of the gospel in depth and detail. If we wish to grow in our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we had better pay careful attention to the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. For in these writings we find divinely inspired accounts of the life of Christ, His person and work, and the victory He has won for all who trust in Him through His obedient life sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection. We are considering the gospel according to Luke. Who then was Luke? Well, let us first say who he was not. He was not one of the twelve apostles of Christ who walked with Jesus in his earthly ministry. And neither does it seem that he was an eyewitness of Christ's life, death, or resurrection. No, to write this gospel we learn that he had to investigate those who were eyewitnesses, as we will soon see. So who was he? We know that he was a close traveling companion of Paul the Apostle. The book of Acts, which was also written by Luke, makes this clear. In Acts 16.10, he begins to use the word we instead of they to describe Paul and his traveling companions. It's a little small change, but it's an important one. It indicates that Luke, from that moment on, was present with Paul and his other traveling companions. We also see that Paul sends greetings to others on behalf of Luke in Philemon 24, 2 Timothy 4.11, and Colossians 4.14, making it clear that Luke was with him. In Colossians 4.14, Paul refers to Luke as the beloved physician, so Luke was a doctor, and he was probably very useful to Paul as such. Luke was a Gentile. He was not Jewish. In fact, he is the only Gentile author of a book of the Bible, and he wrote two of them, both Luke and Acts. Though Luke was not an apostle, he was very close to Paul, who was. 
And something similar can be said of Mark, by the way. Mark was not an apostle of Christ, but he was very close to Peter, who was an apostle. So then, in this way, all four Gospels, all four of these accounts of the life of Christ and the accomplishments of Christ, are backed by apostolic authority. Matthew and John were apostles of Christ. Mark was closely associated with Peter, and Luke was closely associated with Paul. One more fact about Luke before moving on. Given the large size of the books of Luke and Acts, he is responsible for writing about a quarter of the entire New Testament, if we consider it in the terms of words written. Both Luke and Acts come from his hand, and they should be considered together as two parts of a united work. Let us now briefly consider the audience of Luke and of Acts. To whom was Luke writing? At the end of the day, we must say that Luke wrote his gospel and his account of the Acts of the Apostles for the church. He wrote for the benefit of the church. He wrote to those who love God and who believe that Jesus is the Messiah in order to strengthen their faith. But notice that both of his works are dedicated to someone named Theophilus. You may see that name in Luke 1.3 and also in Acts 1.1. Both of these works were dedicated to a man named Theophilus. We don't know much about Theophilus. Some believe that he was not really a person, but that the name, uh, which means lover of God, is meant to stand for all who love God. If this is true, then Luke and Acts are simply dedicated to God's people, all who are lovers of God. But I think it is better to view Theophilus as being a real person, whether or not this was his real given birth name. In Luke, he is called Most Excellent Theophilus. The title, Most Excellent, was reserved for those who possessed power, prestige, or authority in those days. For example, in Acts 26, Paul addresses a man named Festus, a Roman official, as Most Excellent Festus. That Theophilus is called Most Excellent leads me to believe that he was a real person and probably someone of wealth and status. Given his name, it is likely that he was a Gentile and not a Jew. Perhaps he had converted to Judaism as a God-fearer and afterwards came to believe that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the long-awaited Messiah. It is also possible, maybe we should say probable, that Theophilus was the patron or benefactor of the Luke-Acts project. Writing the Gospel of Luke and Acts of the Apostles would have been a very expensive thing. Luke would have needed support to live and to travel while working on this project. Parchment itself was very expensive in those days. So viewing most excellent Theophilus as the one who funded this project makes perfect sense. And this would explain why Luke dedicated the work to him. In summary, it is my view that Theophilus was a real person, probably a Gentile Christian, and a wealthy supporter of Luke and his writing projects. But in saying this, I think it is also right to view Theophilus as a representative of all who love God as he did. Luke dedicated his work to Theophilus, his benefactor, and he wrote for the benefit of the whole church of God, all who loved God as Theophilus did. So we have considered the title, the author, and the audience of this gospel. Let us now consider Luke's stated purpose for writing. 
Authors do not always state their purpose for writing in such a direct way. And when they do, we should pay careful attention to what they say. In in one four, Luke says that he wrote so that Theophilus and all who love God and Christ along with him may have certainty concerning the things they have been taught. That is Luke 1.4. I've written to you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So then Luke wrote to Theophilus with the assumption that he had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and that he had already believed that gospel. Perhaps Theophilus had heard the gospel presented to him orally. Or perhaps Theophilus had read one of the other accounts of the life of Christ that Luke mentions in one one, saying, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, etc. This could be a reference to one of the other Gospels that we have in our canon. It seems likely, though, that Luke is referring to narratives produced by others, not inspired by the Holy Spirit, nor approved by the apostles, and therefore not accepted and preserved by the church. However the good news came to Theophilus, we know that Luke wrote to further the strength of his faith and to confirm the message that he had already heard, so that he might believe beyond all doubt. I'm writing to you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Theophilus had heard the gospel, either orally or he had read about it through the writings of others, and now Luke writes to further strengthen this faith that he possesses. Luke's purpose statement does remind me that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just for the non-believer. It is not just for the non-believer. Who is the gospel of Jesus Christ to be preached to? Some might say, those who do not yet believe, they're to hear the gospel, and that is true. But we must confess that the gospel is for the believer too. The gospel is for the believer too. The gospel must be preached to the non-believing world so that sinners might turn from their sins and place their faith in Christ. But those who have believed must hear the gospel again and again. And we must consider the gospel with more and more care and depth so that we might grow in our understanding, appreciation, and certainty concerning the things that God has graciously done for us in Christ Jesus. When I say that the gospel is for the church also, or that the gospel is for the believer too, I do not mean that ministers of the Word of God ought to preach a brief and superficial gospel to the church over and over again, but rather that the gospel is to always be preached, but it's to be preached with greater depth so that the people of God might grow in depth and in maturity. I'm reminded of Paul's exhortation to the Colossians. He said, Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. That is Colossians 3.16. If we come to believe in Christ through the preaching of the word of Christ, then we are to also grow through the Word of Christ. We're to go on to maturity. The Word of Christ is to dwell in us richly. And I think that Luke is going to help us with this. Luke presents the story of Jesus Christ, His person, work, and reward to us in a very rich way. I have no doubt that Theophilus greatly benefited from Luke's work when he received it. Certainly the church throughout the ages has benefited from this gospel, and I'm confident that the Lord will use His inspired Word to strengthen our faith as well, so that we might have greater 
certainty concerning the things we have already been taught. Let's talk now about methodology. How then did Luke go about producing this gospel so that Theophilus and all who love God along with him might have certainty concerning the things they have been taught? In other words, what was Luke's method? I've already said that Luke was not an apostle, nor was he an eyewitness to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So to write this gospel with all of its, all of its detail, he had to interview those who were eyewitnesses. He mentions his dependence upon eyewitness testimony at the beginning of Luke and Acts. In Luke 1, 1, he says, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered, it them, delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you." O most excellent Theophilus. Luke says, In the first book, O Theophilus, this is now quoting Acts 1.1, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when He was taken up after He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen. He presented Himself alive to them after His sufferings by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. I am here emphasizing the word them that appears in Acts 1, 1 and following. Uh, Luke is admitting that Christ appeared as alive to them, that is to say to the apostles and other eyewitnesses. He showed Himself to them as alive during 40 days and as He spoke about the kingdom of God. Luke does not include Himself in this. He does not say us, but them. Luke does not write the Gospel of Luke or the first half of Acts from personal experience, but as an investigator who had followed these things closely for some time. Luke bases his account of the life of Christ on the testimony of many witnesses. He investigates those who walked with Christ in his life, witnessed his death, and saw him in his resurrection. There is a sense, therefore, in which Luke's gospel is a group project. It is an ordered collection of the testimony of many eyewitnesses. Isn't that interesting to think about? Uh, Luke's gospel comes to us from him, yes. But it is the gathering together of the testimony of many witnesses. Those who walked with Christ saw him in his life, death, and resurrection. By the way, I think it is interesting to think about Luke's process of writing as it pertains to the topic of the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. We confess that all Scripture is inspired by God. We agree with Peter, who said that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter, in, first, in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, is here talking about the doctrine of inspiration. And, and we agree with Paul who said, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So here Paul, in 2 Timothy 3.16, is talking about the doctrine of inspiration. All Scripture is inspired by God, and this certainly includes 
Luke's gospel. The gospel of Luke is inspired scripture. So too is the book of Acts, all of it, even the first 16 chapters that were dependent upon eyewitness testimony. But it must be admitted that God has inspired the writing of Holy Scripture in different ways. I don't know if you've ever thought of this before. There are many ways in which the Lord has inspired the writing of Holy Scripture. Some wrote inspired, uh, some wrote inspired oral traditions that were handed down to them. Others wrote in their study, or we might even say in the case of Paul, jail cell, uh, as they contemplated Scriptures previously written. When God moved Luke to write what he wrote, the Lord moved him through the process of investigation. Again, it seemed good to him, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for us and for most excellent Theophilus. In this way, through the process of investigation, Luke was moved along by the Holy Spirit to write what he wrote so that we so that what we have is not ultimately the Word of Luke, but the very Word of God. As we are engaging with this Gospel, we are engaging with the very Word of God, for this Word is inspired by Him. I want you to notice something interesting in Luke 1-2. Luke does not only say that eyewitnesses delivered these truths to him and to others, He also refers to them as ministers of the word. They are in Luke 1-2 called eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Also, at the beginning of verse 2, he says that these were with Christ from the beginning. So then, Luke wrote his gospel by carefully consulting with those who were, one, with Christ from the beginning of his ministry, two, eyewitnesses, and three, ministers of the Word. Now clearly this is a reference to the twelve apostles of Christ minus Judas. It may also include the 72 disciples of Jesus mentioned in Luke 10. Perhaps there were more. But the point is this. Luke relied on the testimony of those who met all three of these criteria or qualifications. They were one, with Christ from the beginning of His ministry, two, eyewitnesses of His life, death, and resurrection, and three, ministers of the Word. I think this little phrase, ministers of the Word, is very interesting and important. These apostles and disciples of Christ that Luke relied upon for the writing of this gospel were not merely eyewitnesses. They were also ministers of the Word, their mission, the mission given to them by Christ Himself, was not merely to report on facts, facts about what they heard and saw Jesus say and do. They were also entrusted with a message. Are you following with me here? These were not merely eyewitnesses whose job it was to report on the facts so that we have as a dead and lifeless collection of facts, these eyewitnesses, the apostles of Christ and other disciples who walked closely with Him too in His earthly ministry, were in fact entrusted with a message. They were eyewitnesses and they are called ministers of the Word. 
They are called ministers of the Word. What were these eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word to preach and to teach? What, what was their message that they were called to deliver? Well, it should be clear that they were to preach and teach the very things that are now contained for us in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We might also add to this the very things that are contained in the rest of the New Testament too, the epistles. Uh, these writings of Holy Scripture reveal to us the message that they were called to proclaim. They were eyewitnesses of Christ and His life, death, burial, and resurrection, but they were also ministers of the Word. Well, what was their Word? What was their message? Well, we have it now in the writings of the New Testament. All four Gospels tell us about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. All four testify to what He taught and what He did. And notice this, as these eyewitnesses tell us about what they saw and heard, they do not merely present the facts to us as if they were eyewitnesses only, but they labor to demonstrate to us that Jesus is the Christ or Messiah who was promised to Adam, Abraham, Israel, and David. In other words, the apostles and others who were with Jesus from the beginning did not only have facts to present, they also had a message to proclaim. I think this is why Luke refers to them both as eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word. This will become very apparent as we progress through Luke's Gospel. In this Gospel, we will not only find facts concerning the things that Jesus said and did, we will also encounter a message. The very message that the disciples of Christ who were eyewitnesses from the beginning were commanded to proclaim as ministers of the Word of God. Luke's Gospel will seek to not only tell us the facts about what Jesus said and did, but to impress upon us this idea that Jesus is the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the second and greater Adam, the second and greater Moses, the one who has accomplished our redemption, the one who was promised from long ago contained in the Old Testament Scriptures, you see. They had a message to proclaim, and here we have it in the Gospel of Luke. The last question I have for today is this. What was the finished product? What was the finished product? Answer, an orderly narrative concerning the things that Jesus Christ accomplished. That is what we now have. That was Luke's objective from the beginning, as stated in this introductory text. And this is what we now have, an orderly narrative concerning the things that Jesus Christ accomplished. And I would like to consider these three words with you briefly. Orderly, narrative, and accomplished. First of all, Luke's Gospel is orderly. You should know, brothers and sisters, that the ancients were not as concerned with chronological order as we tend to be today. If you were to write a narrative about things that happened, you would be very concerned as a modern to present them in chronological order, that wasn't such a concern to the ancients. Instead, uh, they were more concerned with thematic or literary order. Uh, that is especially true when the narrative has this purpose to present a message. And it is certainly true of Luke's Gospel. I've come to greatly appreciate the thematic or literary order of Luke's Gospel. Information and stories are presented to us in this Gospel in a very skilled way, so as to clearly communicate a message. Many have called Luke's Gospel a masterpiece. The language of Luke is beautiful in its original Greek, and its order 
is beautiful as well. It is ordered in a very careful and brilliant way. Take, for example, the way in which the opening songs and statements from Elizabeth, Mary, Zechariah, and the angels who announced the birth of Christ set the tone and established the major themes of this gospel. We will have a wonderful time considering the things that Elizabeth, Mary, Zechariah, and the angels say at the very opening of the gospel of Luke. The things they say set the tone for the rest of the gospel. The themes that they introduce will be teased out in the rest of the gospel. And I am saying that is a masterpiece of literature when that happens. Luke's gospel is orderly in this sense. It has thematic order. Take, for example, also the placement of the genealogy of Jesus in Luke's gospel. Luke does not set the genealogy of Jesus at the very beginning and before the birth narrative, as does Matthew. But he sets it at the end of chapter 3, after the account of Jesus' baptism, and right before the account of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. As you read it, you, you, you might even be tempted to think, this seems out of order. Why would Luke place the genealogy of Jesus here? Jesus is now a full-grown man. He was just baptized. He's about to go into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the evil one. Why the genealogy now? Wouldn't it have made sense to do what Matthew did and to place it before Uh, The birth narrative, but Luke places it here in this strange place. He's not so concerned with chronology in this sense. He's concerned with delivering a message in the genealogy of Jesus that is found in Luke. uh, We see that the genealogy of Jesus is traced back all the way to Adam. He is called the son of Adam, the son of God. In other words, uh, placing the genealogy here makes a theological point. Before Jesus is driven into the wilderness to be tempted by the evil one, Luke wants us to know that he was going into the wilderness to be tempted as the second Adam and as the Son of God incarnate, as the Messiah who would stomp the head of the serpent, the very thing that Adam, who was tempted in the garden, failed to do. It's a theological point that is made, and Luke makes it, Uh, by ordering his gospel uh, very carefully. Secondly, in the gospel of Luke, we do find a narrative or story. Brothers and sisters, the Christian faith is a story. It is a message about what God has done. It is not merely a philosophical system, a collection of teachings, or a moral code. The Christian faith is centered upon a message or story about what God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has done as our Creator, Sustainer, and Redeemer. And so in the Gospel of Luke we find a story. It is a story about the victory that has been won by the Messiah. Victory over sin, Satan, and death. It is a story about how God has secured peace in heaven, peace on earth and peace for all who are united to Christ by faith. The truth is this, when man fell into sin, all of creation, with the exception of the elect angels in heaven, fell with him. But Christ came to reconcile all things to the Father. He came to secure peace in heaven and on earth through through redemption and judgment. And Luke tells us that story. It is a narrative of the things that have happened uh, in the life of Christ Listen to how Paul puts it 
He speaks of Christ when he says this. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister or minister of the word. I'm tempted to tease all of this out before you, um, I think it is interesting to note that Luke was close with Paul. And what Paul here says to us in Colossians 1, 15-28, for example, in the form of teaching, Paul does not present this truth to us as a narrative here, does he? It's in the form of straightforward teaching. The same truth that Paul presents to us in the form of teaching, Luke presents to us in the form of a narrative or a story. These same doctrinal truths that Paul states in such a direct and black and white way, Luke is going to put before us, but by telling the story of all that Jesus has accomplished. Luke is a narrative. It's a narrative of the things that have been accomplished amongst us. I think it's fascinating to consider, but we're going to be pressed with marvelous doctrines, marvelous truths concerning the peace that Christ has won as we move our way through this glorious narrative, the Gospel of Luke. Finally, let us consider the word accomplished. It is found in Luke 1.1, and it is very, very important. Jesus did not just say things and do things. He accomplished things. I wonder if you can see the difference. Jesus did not just say things and do things. He accomplished things. Everything that Jesus said and did, He did to accomplish the work that the Father gave Him to do in eternity. Everything that Jesus said and did, He did to accomplish or fulfill the things that were said about Him beforehand, as recorded in the pages of the Old Testament, from the first announcement of the Gospel in Genesis 3.15 onward. Brothers and sisters, the Gospel of Luke is a divinely inspired masterpiece. It is an orderly narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. It is a masterpiece, especially when considered as a presentation of Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of the prophecies, promises, types, and shadows of the Old Testament Scriptures. Luke's Gospel, though it is true that he was a Gentile, and not a Jew. And though it is true that his gospel is probably written for those of Gentile persuasion and not Hebrew persuasion, Luke's gospel is dripping 
with Old Testament quotations and allusions. It is saturated with the Old Testament scriptures. In other words, it, it was not just for the Jews to hear about how Christ is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. The Gentiles, who maybe were not raised as Jews and familiar with the Old Testament, had to be taught about it as well. Luke is going to impress upon us that Jesus came to accomplish things, to do the work that the Father gave Him to do, and to fulfill the things that were said about Him previously in the Old Testament times through prophecies, promises, types, and shadows. Luke is clearly concerned to present Jesus to us, not only as a great teacher, miracle worker, as one who had authority and has authority over Satan and his demons, and as the one who was raised from the dead in victory, but rather Luke is also concerned to present to us Jesus as the promised Messiah, the son of Adam and the son of God, who was promised to Adam, Abraham, and Israel. Christ accomplished things, and Luke wants us to know for certain what those things were. How will he go about the process of trying to give Theophilus greater certainty? Well, one thing he will do is show with great clarity that Jesus did not just appear upon the scene one day out of the blue. He did not just come to do some good things and to say some good things. He came in fulfillment to the things previously set the promises that were entrusted to Adam, Abraham, Israel, and David. He wants us to see Christ as the fulfillment of all of the law and the prophets and the Psalms. As many of you know, the name of our church is drawn from Luke's Gospel. It comes from that story found at the very end of this Gospel, in chapter 24, where Jesus meets with two of His disciples on the road to a town called Emmaus. This is a very important story. Think of it. Uh, Conclusions matter, don't they, in writing projects? Conclusions matter a lot. You say really important things in the conclusion to writing projects. You, You wrap everything up, don't you? You tie up all loose ends. Well, at the very end of Luke's Gospel, in Luke chapter 24, we find this story about Jesus with two of His disciples on the road to a town called Emmaus. They are walking away from Jerusalem after witnessing the crucifixion of, of, of their, their Savior, their Lord Christ, Jesus Christ. And they are discouraged. They are perplexed. They are dejected. They are filled with All sorts of confusion. We thought He was the Messiah, but evidently He was not. And so they are walking away, and Jesus in His resurrection meets with Him there on that road. And as they come into the town of Emmaus, Jesus breaks bread with them. He sits with them, and He begins to discuss the Scriptures with them. The Scriptures say that He opens their eyes. This is a theme that we will find throughout Luke's Gospel, that even as these disciples are walking with Jesus, they lack clarity concerning the significance of His person and work all along the way, until when? Until Emmaus. Until He meets with His disciples on the road to Emmaus, breaks bread with them, and begins to explain to them how He accomplished and fulfilled all that was said about Him in the entirety of the Old Testament Scriptures. He spoke to these dejected and confused disciples, saying, O foolish ones, 
and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. To use the language of accomplishment uh, that is found at the very beginning of Luke's Gospel, He demonstrated to them the things that He accomplished in fulfillment to the Scriptures. It was later in that night that He appeared to more of His disciples in Jerusalem. They too were perplexed and afraid. Jesus Himself stood among them and said, Peace to you. Peace to you. That is Luke 24, 36. They were still perplexed. A little later He spoke to them saying, These are My words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about Me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses, there it is, eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word now, of these things. So Christ appeared amongst His disciples who were still confused and even afraid. And He opened their eyes, opened their minds to see how He was present in the Old Testament Scriptures in the form of promise, prophecy, type, and shadow. This is very significant. The the Gospel of Luke is brought to a conclusion with this text here. It is It is the conclusion of this entire gospel. And as we consider the introduction to the gospel of Luke, I think we must see that this is how Luke sought to strengthen the faith of Theophilus and all who are lovers of God along with him. By showing us Jesus Christ in the scriptures, that is to say, in the Old Testament, and presenting to us an orderly and truthful narrative concerning the things that he has accomplished. He did not just say and do things. He accomplished things. How did Luke write his gospel? He interviewed these eyewitnesses whose eyes had been opened to the truth of Christ and to the truth of the Scriptures. Their eyes were opened at Emmaus. Their eyes were opened at Jerusalem after Christ appeared to them in His resurrection. And what was the finished product? an orderly narrative concerning the things that Jesus Christ has accomplished in His life, death, burial, and resurrection. May the Lord bless our consideration of His inspired Word. May we grow in our certainty concerning the things we have been taught concerning Jesus the Messiah, His words of truth, and His finished work. And may it bring greater peace to our souls. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for the written Word of God. We thank You for the way in which it speaks of Christ and holds Him forth to us as the Messiah, as the Savior and the Only One. I pray, O God, that You would strengthen our faith in Christ. I pray that You would deepen our understanding of this glorious gospel that is contained within the Scriptures. May we increase in our certainty concerning who He is and what He has done to win the victory. And may we be at peace, O Lord. I pray for those who do not yet believe in Christ. I pray that they would be present to sit under the ministry of the Word each Lord's Day to hear this gospel presented and that you would draw them, O Lord. We pray, God, that you would work mightily amongst us, enlighten our minds, deepen our love for you in the heart, 
and make our walking more faithful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.